good singing, everybody. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. I'm going to read this psalm to begin our time here of study tonight. and It's just going to sort of be a springboard for us to, um, con- to continue a study that we began uh, several weeks ago. And that, that title, the title of that particular message was the Bible book of God. And we looked at really the nature of scripture uh, from whence it came, why we have what we have in the Bible. And tonight I'm going to share with you a, a message entitled the Bible came to be. So Psalm 19 is where we will start. And if I, as I said, Psalm 19, for some of you, you may have thought of this psalm and you automatically thought of that this, this particular psalm presents for us the general revelation of God and then the special revelation of God. If you didn't think of that, maybe from now on when you hear Psalm 19, that's what you will think of. The general revelation of God and then the special revelation of God. And here's what I mean by that. As we look here at Psalm 19, in the first part of this passage, uh, beginning at verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. I'll stop right there. Do you see the general revelation? You can look around in creation. You can look around at the heavens and see that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And you find here in this passage that there's no place on the face of the earth where the glory of God is not being declared. Okay? So it says that there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That means it's everywhere. All right, so now we go to verse 7, and this takes us into the special revelation. And that's particularly what we will focus on tonight. But beginning at verse 7, you can see how it reads, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Then in verse 10, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So verses 7 through 11, we see here the special revelation of God. 
you might call it the specific revelation of God. God has not left us to guess who he is or what he is like, but he has articulated that in the written word. Here in this passage, we see it, the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, the judgment. And then we see what the impact of those have in our lives. The general revelation of God does not convert the soul. The general revelation of God does not make wise the simple. It does not rejoice the heart. It does not enlighten the eyes. But the special revelation of God, the written word of God does that. Because the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, picking up at verse 12. Guys, could you all turn me up just a little bit? My voice is weak today and I need all the help I can get. Verse 12, it says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You see... The general revelation of God is not going to reveal to us our errors and our secret faults and keep us back from presumptuous sins. But the written word of God reveals that to us and causes us to know how to be a people who honor the Lord with our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, our singing has been wonderful but lofty tonight because, Lord, I fear I so often do not live up to what I sing with my lips, that my heart's not there. And, Lord, I pray that through our assembling, that this ordinary means of grace that you have given to your church through the through singing, praying, the preaching of the word and the reading of the word, would would all of these would would be these ordinary means, Lord, to cause us to grow in our affections to you. Lord, we know that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things He may have the preeminence. And Lord, I pray Jesus would truly have the preeminence in our lives. Forgive us, God, for um, exchanging the Christ so easily and so often for the very weak things that this world has to offer. But I thank You, God, that You give us grace. You give us these means. And through them, you are working in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. Give us understanding tonight. And Lord, I pray you will help me to have the strength that I need to deliver to your people the message tonight. And I pray your people, as always, God, would be built up because of it. In the name of our Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. As I said um, a little, just a little while ago, we began a, a little study a few weeks ago. And the title of that one was The Bible Book of God. 
Tonight we're continuing in that because I feel like there's some things that we still need to wrap up in regards to that study and our maybe understanding of Scripture, the nature of Scripture, and why we have what we have in the Bible. No doubt this could go much longer than that. The reason we got into this to begin with was because of our study there in Second Peter chapter 1, where it talks about that more sure word of prophecy. And that caused us me to kind of delve into this a little bit more and then to preach that message to you then. It is interesting that not only there in Second Peter, when there was a struggle with false teachers, but also in Second Timothy chapter 3, when again, Timothy was being instructed about false teachers and those who desire to have their ears tickled, that he takes Timothy to the Word of God, to Scripture. And there he talks about the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as it says, is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be um, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in both of those instances where there's dealings with false teachers and the church has to be aware of that, what the church is pointed back to and what the leaders of the church are pointed back to is the written word of God, the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons of many why we must be so diligent to know the Bible and to teach the Bible, to read the Bible, to uh, understand the Bible, because we, we got to know what the genuine article is. If we're going to know what all of the false articles are that will come across our paths, come across our lives, we've got to know what the Bible teaches. So th- that takes me to our, our handout tonight and to the outline that I have for you that we're going to work through. And this is going to deal with some of the stuff that we talked about last time. But first of all, if you have a handout, you'll see that uh, the word canon is a word that means rule or measuring rod. All right. I talked to you some about that last time when we were together, the canon of Scripture and what determined the canon of Scripture. Now, that's spelled with one end in the middle, not two. So I guess it's not relative to the canons that are here in our uh, fellowship. But canon of Scripture, it means rule or measuring rod. Now, working our way through this, uh, some of these comments are from James White in his book, Scripture Alone. But it says the nature of Scripture determines the canon of Scripture. Now, what do you mean by that? I'll, I'll remind you of some of the points that I shared with you last time when we were dealing with this topic. The first one was this, that we need to understand about the Bible, that Scripture is from the eternal God who inhabits eternity and does what He pleases. So we understand the nature of Scripture because we understand the nature of God, at least what is revealed in the Bible about Him, that He is the eternal God who inhabits eternity and does what He pleases. The second thing we saw about the Scripture is this, that it has a predetermined purpose. Scripture has a predetermined purpose, and we looked at several instances of that from the Bible. I would invite you to go back and listen to that if you uh, have questions about it or would like to uh, be reminded of it. Number three, we saw that uh, we need to understand that the eternal God has preserved His eternal Word. 
Folks, that's what it boils down to when it comes to looking at the Bible and being confident in that which we have in our hands. We are confident in the word that we have because we are confident in the God who has spoken his word and who had his word recorded for us. Thus, we have scripture. And then number four, we understand indeed that scripture came by means. That means that it came by people. It was God breathed. He breathed that out as we will see in just a moment. So the nature of scripture determines the canon of scripture. And here's two points for you. Number one is this scripture is God breathed. He didn't uh, have a man, the apostle Paul began to write down a letter to the Philippians or to the Ephesians or whoever it was that Paul was writing to. And okay, God didn't say, okay, I'm going to breathe into that. I'm going to inspire that writing so that it is now scripture. It is much more of an expiration. God has breathed it out. God has breathed out his word. And when he breathed out his word, he chose to do so through men writing his word, whether it was Moses who wrote the word of the Lord, or it was Isaiah, the prophet, or it was Matthew, or whether it was Paul, the apostle. But God, through these some 40 human authors, breathed out his word and it has been recorded in scripture in black and white for us to be able to read and to be um, exhorted from, to be admonished from, as the Bible has told us. So we see, first of all, God. Scripture is God-breathed. You see God in that word right there, theonoustos, theo being God, noustos. It's not pneuma, but it's neo, and it means um, wind or breath. So this is God breathed. You see God in that very word right there. And I believe that's the only place in the Bible where that word is found. 2 Timothy 3.16. And now the next part is we see Scripture is revealed within its own revelation. Scripture is revealed within its own revelation. Uh, James White says about Scripture that Scripture or the canon is the artifact of revelation It's not an object of revelation. So um, uh, the canon is an artifact of it. It is proof of the revelation of God. It's not the object of it. In other words, the Bible isn't just giving us the revelation of God. The Bible is the revelation of God. Now... um, Working on through here, we see that uh, the next question or the question that I would ask is, so what was the rule or measuring rod the church measured books by to know they were correct in receiving a writing as scripture? Let me get my hand out out here so that I can follow along because my notes aren't exactly the same as y'all's. All right, so that's a mouthful, but we would ask the question, so what was the rule or measuring rod the church measured books by to know they were correct in receiving a writing as Scripture? Before we get to that, let's look at three reasons, not two actually, why we needed to know for sure or why they needed to know for sure. Here's the first one, heresies. Heresies. Why was it important to know that the Bible was the Bible? That what the church was using, what the church held to, though the Old Testament had for a long time already 
been um, closed, if you would. There was no doubting really about the Old Testament because by 400 or so, the, the prophets had spoken, Scripture had been written, and it was viewed as the Jewish people as the Word of God. By 250 B.C., the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament, was already written, and uh, Scripture by the Jews was being viewed as that. Now, the Apocrypha, and that's the word I may come back to later on. It's a word that means hidden. Uh, the Apocrypha is a group of writings that is also found in the Catholic Bible and some of the, I guess, Orthodox churches in their Bibles. Um, they would have other scriptures beyond the 39 books of our English Old Testament that would be compiled there. And the Septuagint, to my understanding, actually had these in there. But the Jewish people never viewed these as Scripture. They were just historical writings that were compiled during that those silent years. They were historical writings. They viewed them as being good reading and uh, good supplementary sources, but they were never viewed and are still not viewed today as Scripture like we view the 66 books of the Bible. But there were heresies that began to pop up. The first heresy that really caused an issue and made this to be something that was uh, quite necessary was in around 144 A.D., uh, 144 A.D. And this was by Marcion. And Marcion began to teach that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were different. The New Testament God, he said, sent Jesus to deliver us from the Old Testament God. Marcion developed his own canon consisting of Luke's and Paul's writings the Old Testament and other New Testament books were excluded. All right, so this guy comes on the scene. A heretic is someone who, like a bird, picking seed, picks what he likes, picks it here, picks it there, picks it here, picks it there, and he takes only the things that are going to build or bolster his argument or his teaching. He doesn't take the whole counsel of God. And Marcion was taking that which he preferred, and as a heretic, he begins to teach uh, false doctrine. So the question would arise, what is the Bible? What actually measures up to the standard of God's uh, scriptures that he has given to us? The second one is this, that there were Roman imprisonments taking place. Roman imprisonments for possessing Christian scripture. So the uh, as I just said, you could be locked up if you had Roman or had Christian scripture. So it's good to know if you've got scripture or not. It's good to know what scripture is. And that was another reason why it was necessary that uh, that there be an understanding of this. And then finally, number three is this, the apostles dying. So the apostles began to die off at the end of the first century. The apostle John likely being the last of the apostles who would die. And because of their death, it was necessary that the church know, you know, what, what is, what is actually, uh, scripture? What can we look to as the written word of God? Let me give you four criteria now for canonization. Now, please remember, as I'm sharing this with you, it's not like the church got together one day 
and even in any council, and I'm not even going to name any of the councils that took place in the past, but that some church council got together and said, okay, we've got these four criteria. Now, let's look at all the writings out there and see which ones fit up, match these criteria. That's not the way it worked. The way it seemed to have worked is the apostles wrote a letter. The letter began to be circulated through the churches. It went from one church to the other church to the other church. They received it. They read it. They said, this is the commandment of the Lord from the Apostle Peter, from the Apostle Paul. And it was readily accepted. And it just kept going from church to church to church. It was Scripture. It was a functional canon. It was a canon of Scripture that was being developed during the first century. All right. So churches, one after the other, had begun to accept these writings. It was known and becoming more and more known that this is the authoritative Word of God. So when it came time for these councils to get together, they said, we have this already. This is received by the churches. This is the written Word of God. And it has these qualities about it. All right. So don't think, and I've, I've had this misconception in the past, that there were these four criteria and then they looked at the writings and saw what met up to it. That's not necessarily how it happened. Because the canon was already developed, it was already compiled within the church. All right. The church was already receiving these things. They, they more, they more or less, when they got together in these councils, uh, signed off on it and said, yep, that, that's it. These, these are the ones that we accept. These 27 books are the ones that we accept in, in the New Testament. Um, so let's, let's work through these. Number one, the four criteria for canonization. Number one is this. It's written or influenced by an apostle. Written or influenced by an apostle. All right. And then the other one, a second point, sub point underneath that is that it's written under the auspices of an apostle. So under the oversight or with the influence of an apostle. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the table of contents. And we're dealing mainly with the New Testament um, tonight, but in our in our table of contents in our Bible, let's just kind of think through this a little bit. <clears throat> All right, so we go to the table of contents. In the table of contents, you have the books of the Old Testament. Then you have the books of the New Testament. There's 39 books of the Old Testament in the English Bible. And then there's 27 books, 27 Old Testament books in the English Bible. 20, sorry. 39 Old Testament books in the English Bible, 27 New Testament books in the English Bible. Everybody got your table of contents open there? All right, let's work through them. Matthew, was he an apostle? All right, so he wrote his account. Mark, was he an apostle? No. Luke, was he an apostle? What about John, was he an apostle? He was. And then you got Romans all the way through Philemon. Who wrote those 13 letters? Paul, was he an apostle? Yes, he was. All right, so he wrote those. And then we come to the book of Hebrews. Who wrote? He, he, not even opening that can of worms tonight, okay? 
And it doesn't matter what any of our opinions are um, about that. All right. So Hebrews, we, we can't say for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but let's go to the next one. James, was he an apostle? Now, what James was this? Yeah, brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. It wasn't James, the brother of John, who was an, a disciple because he was, uh, the, he was the first apostle to be killed in Acts chapter 12. But this, uh, this writer was the half-brother of Jesus, and he became a pillar in the church. You can learn in the book of Galatians that he was a pillar in the church. Acts chapter 15, we see him being very important in the church as an apostle. Now we go to Peter, first and second Peter. Was he an apostle? Yes. What about first, second, and third John? Any apostleship on that? Yes. Yep. What about Jude? Who's this Jude we're reading we see here? Half brother of Jesus. Okay. All right, so half brother of Jesus. And then we go to the book of Revelation. Who wrote Revelation? John. All right, so the majority of these writings you see in the New Testament um, had an apostle or an apostle wrote them. Now, the ones that were not written by an apostle, what about Luke? Did he have any, were there any of the apostles an influence on Luke? Who, who would have been an influence on Luke? Paul. Yeah. Luke was a physician. He was a great historian. As a matter of fact, what he gives us in the book of Acts is the really the most detailed account of the early days of the church that we have. There's nothing else that compares with the book of Acts. So Luke here was a traveling companion with Paul, a fellow worker with the apostle Paul. So it's no doubt um, that influence was there. And then we go to, um, I skipped over one, Mark. What about Mark? He wasn't an apostle. Did he have any apostolic influence? If so, who was it? Anybody know? Peter, that's right. Peter is, uh, it is held, that commonly held, that Peter is the one who gave Mark the information that he obtained for the writing of his uh, gospel. And then we go finally to the book of Hebrews. Not knowing who this author is, why is it that Hebrews would be found to make it into the canon of Scripture? And we could probably say it's because of the high Christology of Christ. We'll see this falling under some of these other points in a moment, but the uh, how it's saturated with the Old Testament and shows how Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament offerings, all of the Old Testament points of religion, that Jesus trumps all of those. So there's this high Christology of Christ that caused the... Um, book of Hebrews to be received into the canon or to be received by the churches and then ratified as far as far as part of the canon. But number two is this. It's written during the first century, written during the first century. It was important that these writings would be would be completed by the time that the apostles died off because it would be hard for them to have an influence over that writing if they were dead. 
and if it, ha- if it happened after they had lived. Number three is this. It was recognized by the church universally. What does that mean? You go to the church in Ephesus. You go to the church in Jerusalem. You go to the church in Antioch. You go to the church in Rome. And you would find in all of these churches, for instance, that they would be receiving the gospel of Matthew. That they would be receiving as authoritative the gospel of Luke or Mark or the book of Acts. And they would all say, this is the word of God. So it is universally accepted. And as these writings of Scripture were universally accepted, accepted that was one of the criteria that said yes that is indeed the scripture which God has given to his people to his church and then number three is the number four is this alignment with the apostles doctrine the book of Hebrews in particular falls under that as far as uh, because we do not know its author but we see here that all of the writings in the New Testament, are going to align. As a matter of fact, we see from Genesis to Revelation that the whole canon of Scripture has one main theme, and that is redemption of humanity through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That God is accomplishing salvation through His Son. And Jesus said as much about that. There's a gnat flying around up here. I may have to swat it here in a moment. But Jesus said as much about the Bible, that you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. So he's saying there to the Jews that the Bible, the Old Testament, is pointing to me. And we obviously see that the New Testament does as well. Just as a real quick side note, you might write down Galatians 1, 6 through 8. But in this, uh, the apostle writes, To the Galatians, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And notice what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven Preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, he again writes about um, false teachers. But he says, for if, uh, if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which we have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So in other words, he's going back to what the apostles have taught in the gospel, in the word of God, in sound doctrine. And he says, if it doesn't align with what we have taught you, then you ought to reject it. It ought not to be received. Then in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And then one other, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. You might write that verse down, but he writes here to the Thessalonians, who were a church that was easily shaken, it seemed. But it says about them, he says to them, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter. As if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. 
He's saying, listen, church, if it doesn't line up with what we have taught you, do not receive it. It is not from God. All right. Does that make sense? So those are sort of uh, four criteria, uh, again, that really calls the early church in the third and fourth centuries, probably fourth century, to uh, really sign off finally on the 27 books that we have. Now, I want to go back to you and, and, and note one thing. The earliest account that is found of the 27 books of the New Testament was in a letter, an Easter letter that was written by Athanasius. And let's see if I can find that here in my notes somewhere. Give me just a moment. I know it's here. All this pressure on me. I don't guess I can find it right now. But Athanasius, a one of the um, a bishop and leader in the church, wrote, and I believe it was around the two forties in an Easter letter. And in writing in that letter to the church, he wrote and mentioned the twenty seven books, and that was the mentioning of the twenty seven books of the New Testament. I'll find that as soon as the message is over with. I'm sure. All right, so now let's let's move on as we wrap this up tonight. So what about the writings that did not make it into the canon? What about the writings that did not make it into, in other words, Scripture? Because when I say canon, folks, what we're saying is the canon is the 66 books of the English Bible that we hold in our hands that we treasure. All right? 39 in the Old Testament. I don't know how many times I said that wrong earlier, but there's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 66 total. This is the canon of Scripture because all of these writings have measured up. As a matter of fact, let me say it this way. They set the standard. These writings set the standard by which all others would be measured. This is the canon of Scripture. This is the measuring rod. So what about the writings that did not make it into the canon. Could we have missed something? Legitimate question. We see examples of this in the Old Testament. The book of Jasher, Joshua 10, 13. The book of Wars of the Lord, Numbers 21, 14. The book of the Acts of Solomon, 1 Kings eleven forty one, And then... We go to New Testament examples. I don't have cool titles like that for these. But uh, when it comes to the letters to the Corinthians, if you dive into that a little bit, you'll, you'll know that uh, that is all called the Corinthian correspondence. Because it was more than just two letters that Paul wrote to them. He had actually written to them and they wrote back in 1 Corinthians. He answered a lot of the questions that they had. And then at another point, he appeared to have written what is called a severe letter, a letter that would have brought um, mourning and weeping to them because of their sin. And then he wrote to them Second Corinthians. All right. So there's this Corinthian correspondence where they are writing back and forth to one another. So we might ask ourselves the questions, has something gotten lost? And now we do not have all of the Bible, but there's more out there that we need to try to find. 
And then we see also in Colossians 4.16. You may remember this from our last time that we looked at this. But Paul told the Colossians that they are to read the letter from Laodicea. So so there's a letter that was written to the Laodiceans. And now the Colossians, they're told, "Read, read it. So we might say, are we missing something? And to that, I say wrong question. Because the question should not be, are we missing some part of the Bible? But the question could, should be, did God leave us without part of Scripture that we need or that He desired for us to have? So it's the wrong question. And as we look back and we remember the eternality of God and that He accomplishes His purposes, because not that we have confidence in the church or have confidence in man, but we have confidence in God who is trustworthy and has revealed to us in the written word all that we need. So let me give you these examples. Psalm thirty-three, eleven: The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 135 verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And then finally, we see as a parenthetical statement in John chapter 10, I barely got that on the screen, but it says, and the scripture cannot be broken. So we have this confidence, church, in our God who has given us his word and has preserved it and will have it preserved in heaven forever. But the things I've shared with you tonight are kind of how it worked its way out in the in history. Okay? And it all points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is that we can open it and read it. Are you reading it? Are you reading it and seeking to hide it in your heart to know God through His Word? It is a great privilege. We'll dismiss with prayer. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In this, Lord, we have confidence. In this, uh, we believe. And Father, in this word, we learn of eternal life through Jesus. May we be faithful to share it. May we grasp it, hold to it by faith. And Lord, on our dying day, I pray that our testimony, our confession will not have changed, but that on that day, like today, we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and do so to the glory of God the Father. Father, I pray your word be rightly taught and proclaimed among your people and by your people in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.